Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney, here with our old friend, PC Gamers, Fraser Brown. Hello, enough of the old, actually. <laughs> <laughs> our, our, our young, best days still ahead of him, PC Gamers, Fraser Brown. Okay, now we'll do it. Hello. <laughs> uh, we're also joined by GamesBeat's Crest Studies teaching fellow, Rowan Kaiser. Uh, good morning. I'll do my Hahnemann voice. Good morning. <laughs> uh, and we're also joined by Kotaku's Gita Jackson. Yo, what up? I'm Gita. <laughs> That's how I know. <laughs> That's Gita. All right. Uh, so this week, we've been back to school with Fire Emblem Three Houses, a tactics RPG from Intelligent Systems, and uh, Koei Tecmo. This is my first Fire Emblem, which is weird because this has been a series that people have been telling me to play for years, and uh, I just never committed to the platforms this game appeared on, but I have a Switch now, so I'm playing Fire Emblem Three Houses, uh, but I've, I feel like I'm missing some context, I need to do some catching up. Uh, Fraser and Rowan, I know you guys go back with the series a little bit. What is the fire? Like in a nutshell, what are the, what's the sort of through line of the Fire Emblem series, and is this new game for the Switch a meaningful departure from it? So I think like the core idea of Fire Emblem from the beginning was like it's a tactics game with permadeath with embedded characters, which is a bit odd. Uh, like all these characters are created and designed and written for the game. And then like, they can also all die. It's not like an XCOM or darkest dungeon where they're randomized and then they die. Uh, so that was like the big selling point for fire emblem versus other, especially Japanese tactics games. Um, it's also a lot simpler than a lot of other Japanese roleplay tactics games where you have like class systems that go down a well for hours and hours. And, you know, in Disgaea, you can do tactics inside items to make the items slightly better and just do that forever. Uh, this is just you go through a plot chapter by chapter. Um, in recent years, the big things that have come up since Fire Emblem Awakening, well, they've sort of always toyed with like, or increasingly toyed with, like, befriending your fellow characters. But in recent years, it's, like, taken a huge step towards romance and, like, actively becoming kind of a soap opera where each of your characters can all be friends. In the two previous games, Fates and Awakening, they would also get married and have time-traveling babies. So there was a whole, like, metagame of trying to figure out not just who would become friends, but also who would become lovers and send you the very best time-traveling babies. It was it was a whole thing. Uh, this one has pulled back a bit from that. Uh, you're still able to make friends, but it's not like the entirety of the game is designed around hooking your characters up. So it's a bit more of a throwback Fire Emblem in that respect. Fraser, I'm curious... Uh... Does has it always been this kind of really detail oriented tactics game? Because while the game's pretty easy for me so far, it gives me a lot of options, and I'm realizing that if this game were a little bit harder, there would be a lot of fine tuning and customization to make my lineups work. And I'm wondering, like, has this kind of naughtiness and uh, systemic depth been a feature of the series? It's I'd say that. Some elements are like way more elaborate in uh, three three houses, like considerably more than the last one I played. I skipped 
the previous game, which is the one that you could get two versions of and just seemed like a hassle. Um, but yeah, it's it's always had a lot of options, but it's never been a particularly tricky series. The tactics, like, it's not deep in the way that XCOM is, where you've got, like, a lot of things like elevation and cover and all of these other things to worry about, Overwatch and lots of special abilities. It is a little bit more just about kind of positioning and moving around the map. This time it's become a little bit more dungeon-y, though. I feel like a lot of the... Uh, battle scenarios feel like little quests through dungeons. There's lots of chests, like there's monsters to fight, there's grinding to do. There's a lot of grinding to do, actually. Although maybe to the detriment of the game, this is something we were speaking about a little while ago, which was that you can really get carried away with just doing the random battles that don't take up any like time in the game. So you can keep doing as many of these battles as you want and quickly beef up your roster of team warriors uh, until you could just smash the competition. And you don't even have to focus on it. Do it for a few turns. You'll gain a few levels and you'll just power through the next few battles. And it makes it feel a little bit easier. I think if you play on hard or don't grind, you might see characters dying a bit more often. Uh, Fraser mentioned another fairly important thing for the last couple games. Um, Fates, in particular, as he said, was sort of centered around this idea of there are three different games. There's like two main ones that you play, and then once you've finished both of those, there's a third way to play the game, and you make a decision early which one you're going to do. Uh, and then Three Houses also has this focus on like which choice are you going to make determines which game you're going to play at a certain level. Um, it is not as bad as Fates. Fates, I think, kind of ruined itself by doing that. Um, whereas this one just like, I don't know, it seems like they're trying to solve a replayability problem, and I'm not sure that, I mean, we could get into this a lot more, and I'm sure we will, but I, I'm not sure exactly why they are obsessed with having these, like, gigantic choices at the very beginning of the game that you have to decide to, you know, which direction you are going, and then everything flows from that. Well, but that is a recent uh, feature of the series. Yeah, I think that feature... Um... So the, the, honestly, like, and I'm not just blowing smoke here, but like, Gita, your review was probably the thing that pushed me over the edge into playing this because one of the things that you really highlighted in this is this notion that Fire Emblem Three Houses has this feeling of the entire game taking place on the eve of something. That these sort of factional alignment choices you have reflect the game, the, the setup for the entire game, and the way the entire narrative is going to play out based on based on what you chose. And that sounds interesting enough to me. I'm a sucker for uh, sort of uh, Eve of Destruction type stories, Edge of, edge of the Abyss uh, type settings, uh, that I was like, I'm, you know, I'm really curious how this all plays out. Um, you tell us a little bit about the setup for Three Houses and how that, how that replayability feature interacts with just the way it chooses to tell, set up and tell its story. Okay, so part of the plot, the plot of Three Houses is that you are a teacher uh, at a monastery in a fantasy land where the future leaders of the three different countries on this continent have sent their children, and you are raising uh, one of the titular Three Houses, you're their professor, and um, 
So you have to choose between each of these houses, and little do they know, but you know, is uh, that they are on the their countries are on the brink of war. So after you spend a year teaching these students, basically, uh, there's a five year time skip, and everyone that is not in your house or anyone that you haven't recruited from the other houses, uh, they're going to be the enemy soldiers on the other side. So I've actually I've beaten the game, and now I'm uh, like two two-thirds of the way done on my second playthrough <laughs> and it's um the game incentivizes playing the game again so strongly like as soon as you finish the game you get to like a like movie gallery and it shows you all the like uh cut that you haven't seen yet and it's such an intense pull that i immediately started the game over as soon as i finished my run through especially because um I've now played part of Claude, the Golden Deer. I played all of Claude's ha- uh, uh, version of the story. He was the person I chose for my, my first run. And now I'm halfway through Dimitri's. And they're radically different stories. Like, very, very, very different stories. And now I, like, already know that I'm going to play this game a third time, like, immediately afterward. Because I have to... It's created, like, a fairly engrossing, like, fantasy world. And now I have to know what happens next. And I feel... That I feel dumb that they got me like so bad, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like they they got me, and I just and it's so different from Fates too because Fates I felt like it became so clear early on in Fates. Uh, I was playing Conquest, which was the the harder one that doesn't let you grind, and it just became so clear early on that the games were probably extremely similar when you get down to it, and that the story that I was getting was like clearly the like the non-main version of the story and was like the plot in it was just so boring and stupid and i just couldn't finish you it felt, you felt that way about the harder one yeah i just felt the like easier one was even worse oh my god like it it just took me it doesn't matter how good the gameplay was and it was like the, once you got to the tactics stuff it was like really entertaining because i just didn't care about any person that i was like yeah. using to fight you know and the great like what really works in three houses is that you still get that same like oh if i choose these people i'm not gonna have those people but you have the ability to recruit them so you can still form deep attachments to everybody and they're all very well written characters really even the ones that i think suck um but <laughs> with the other one it was just like people showed up and you could tell they were a character from the other game because they had like a <laughs> much better car- portrait design they were like well i don't know why i should care about you and you just kill them <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in in Fates, just to go back to this, because I think, like, the idea that they're trying to to do this thing again, they're trying to fix the problems of Fates is important. Uh, Specifically, uh, you had a choice at the beginning of the game, depending on which cartridge you have, although it's presented as an in-game choice, uh, to pick, like, you are the adopted, or you are, like, a hostage with a very nice set of nobles, from a very mean set of nobles house and at the beginning they're starting to fight each other and you have to choose do you go back to your uh blood family who are kind of a bunch of jerks or do you stay with your adopted family who's very nice and conquest the version that gita played and i tried to play mostly but i i found it eventually too hard um you stick with kind of the jerks and your story with them is like basically figuring out how they're jerks from the inside and maybe that there's something bigger going on. And then in the, the other game, uh, I don't remember the subtitles for each of them, but you play as the nicer of the 
two houses and your base the entire story is basically you're taking a bunch of very cool heroes on a quest to go defeat the the house from conquest who are evil and then you do and that's it um and then there is a third version that you pay another twenty dollars to download where you um just say fuck all y'all and go off and do your own thing you say you reject the core choice of the game although it's you know programmed um and you you figure out what's really happening so in order to like understand that one at all you had to not only play through it three times but you had to buy it three times and like uh easy version that i played most of had just shit level design like it was just like here are a bunch of guys go smash them whereas conquest had really good level design but there was no way to grind and both of them felt like they were clearly half of a story where this one it feels like this is a story where the parts that you don't understand are the parts you want to know more of as opposed to uh i'm missing something really obvious and you're like deliberately doing that in order to get more money out of me uh which yeah. is a huge improvement. When you when you play Three Houses, you will see the entirety of a particular character's perspective and motivation. You won't, that story will feel complete. Um, you just wonder about other characters' motivations and perspectives, and so you know, in order to have to understand them, you have to choose the other house. Um, I, it's just it's interesting to go from one house to another. Like you really do see things from a very different point of view. But I'll save that. I'll save that. You can, of course, bring characters from other houses into your class, which is quite nice because then, like, there are a lot of characters who you, like, will meet and absolutely get along with and would want to bring into battle. And you can just pick every single person up almost uh, and add them to your little collection of students. Uh, so even though you might miss out on the house stories, you're still getting the character stories. And they have uh, conver- uh, support conversations with each other, even if they're not in the same house, which is really nice because you don't feel like you are pulling them out of their own story, I guess. Yeah. Uh, another another good thing about this is that you recruit them by like doing things in the game. It's not just a button that you happen to press. It's that uh, you go and you talk to them, and the first time you press recruit, it says, here are the things I like. You know, I like people who have high magic and high faith. So if you want to get that character, now you know I will take my Byleth, which is your main character's default name, and I will make Byleth go and learn how to do magic and faith because I really want to recruit think that's in that but whatever um or you can just like give them gifts until they come over to your side but you know there's there's like an opportunity cost which makes for interesting decisions instead of just like i am building my character to be the strongest they possibly can it's i am trying to get my friends which i i tend to like this in games that that force you not to play just to win but play in order to uh you know, have other goals within trying to win. And uh, going back to, like, Fire Emblem Awakening, when you were trying to build support characters up so that they would, you know, have babies together or whatever, uh, then you were, like, making your tactical decisions based on putting the people you want to be friends together. And that was just, like, mind-blowingly cool at the time. I mean, it's like, six years ago, so we're not talking ancient. But uh, those are the sorts of decisions, like... 
the non-optimizing decisions that have made the modern Fire Emblems seem so appealing, both tactically and as, like, narratives. Well, this, for me, is the thing that has has maybe been the most pleasant surprise, is how invested I am in these relationships and these characters. Because if you just want a game that sort of feeds you one good tactical battle after another, I don't necessarily... I have not found the sweet spot with the difficulty in Fire Emblem Three Houses. Like, for me, it's still been pretty smooth halfway through the game. In terms of wanting something that's going to keep me continually, like, kind of up against it the way XCOM, when it works, <laughs> maybe does. Uh, and I know it's a big caveat, but uh, I'm not sure Fire Emblem Three Houses is necessarily that game. But the thing that carries it for me, and the thing that I was not expecting to enjoy nearly as much as I do, is this social life of the school aspect and some of it's very gamey uh to fraser's point as part of recruiting people i keep finding lost items around the school and as my partner described it after a point you got so many kids like lost garbage that you just walk up to people and you spread a bunch of shit on the ground in front of them and you're like any of the shit yours and if if they see something that's theirs, they're like, oh, hell yes, that is my trash. And then they like you more, and it's easier for you to recruit them. That can be a little bit of a fussy uh, like social grind system. But the payoff for this stuff, the thing that really makes all of this work, is this notion that <clears throat> these characters like form relationships and play off of each other, and also form a relationship with, uh, with your byleth. And some of these interactions are really interesting. And I think it helps that there are a lot of characters who have surprised me in some really exciting ways. I've, I've heard some people talk about, we, we had this conversation over at Waypoint the other day where Viral apparently always has been a series where in... In sort of high school anime tradition, people have one characteristic that is like their thing and it defines them. And that's kind of true here. But I've also been pleased to see when you have unlikely pairs of characters strike up a friendship or at least a relationship, you do realize that there are other facets to these characters that are brought into relief based on who is around them. And that stuff has to be good for this to be an engaging game, right? If if this was just a lot of like boring dialogue that you could might as well skip through, I don't think I don't think I would have hung with this game. I don't think this game would work. But the thing is, it is really good stuff. I am like one of the things carrying me along is genuine nervousness about the moral destiny of these characters. Uh, and I'm not alone. Like at this point, I can no longer play the game by myself. Uh, my partner has said this is now a couples game, uh, which <laughs> never happens. To be clear, this just this is not this is not how we roll. This isn't a we are not a I play games and MK watches me play games on the couch. That's not us, except for this game where she was like, I I need to know. Sorry, I need to know what's what's going on with uh, with this Dimitri guy. He seems. He seems like he's on the edge, and this was before. And this was before things got real on the edge. Oh wow! But we'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah, I I found the character writing in this game to be like exceptional, and I really like even 
every character I, I when I first met all the characters I was like okay I can see which one of you are like this house is ladies man this house is like big strong dumb guy like you're the weird like misanthrope that <laughs> poor Raphael is, you know like it, it, they seemed obvious and easy but once you get to know them not just through um like the support conversations but even through incidental stuff like how they talk to you in the classroom you find that they are like very well-rounded human beings that are crafted by really specific circumstances in which they are raised like hilda's whole thing i thought i was gonna find her so irritating because she's this like real rich girl with pink hair you think oh i know this sort of archetype anywhere i i know exactly what to expect and then she's got like this really complex sort of family drama with her trying to uh figure out how to live her life as like the younger sister or someone who is like immensely talented and very well known and she just really doesn't feel the like need to do any of the things that he does and you just really end up so fond of them that's that when you can't recruit the person that you don't that you want to have in your team and you don't want to have die you get so <laughs> fucked up like you just get so upset i i just hit the time skip but i realized it was about to happen and my last this game unfolds in a series of weeks and starting on like monday you do some instruction and basically that gives you a chance to up the skills of your the members of your class uh but on sundays you get a day to do whatever. You can do those battles, those random battles that uh, the Fraser mentioned. You can take a seminar where you and a group of characters get a pretty significant uh, bump to your skills uh, from, from one of the professors. But usually what you're going to end up doing is exploring the monastery. And that means running around, chatting people up, uh, finding more of their trash and trying to match it with the person who lost it uh, and a lot of other stuff. But my last like two weekends before the time skip that happens midway through this game where it realizes at that point the stakes of the story were becoming clear. And this is a thing this game pulls off really well is at first it very much is a high school anime in some ways. Like there are hints that there's some there are dark forces in the world and there's stuff at work, but by and large, it feels like you're pretty secure where you are. It feels like you live in a place where historical processes don't seem to be happening for a lot of these characters, at least not right now. And then it slowly starts picking up speed, and then it starts moving faster when you realize, oh, all of this could be about to fall apart uh, pretty spectacularly. And so by the time you start realizing that there's going to be a point where you go to a, like, uh, five years later point in the game. Um, at that point, it was my last chance to recruit characters from other houses into my class. And so I was just sprinting around the school trying to pull... Because I figure whoever whoever I'm playing is going to come out okay in this war, right? Like, whoever <laughs> whoever is on my side, whoever is on my team... Uh, for the purposes of this playthrough, we're going to be pr protagonists. Uh, so you're better off on my team uh, than anyone else's. And so I was just running around that school, just like throwing gifts at people. Just like, hey, uh, you like board games? Shoving owl feathers down their throats. Oh. Everyone loves owl feathers, uh, though, of course. So much. That's such a normal thing to give to someone is owl feathers. I bring a whole owl if I'm on a date. 
it fits the it fits the whole bower bird aesthetic of the gifting and lost items recovery uh honestly yeah. just like here's here's shiny objects here's some feathers uh, why you what's up with those lines? tea parties? You could have had owl parties. It was so much better. I like the tea parties, which are these things where, like, everyone during a birthday, you can invite someone to have tea with the professor, um, and you choose the actual blend of tea and the topics of conversation in a mini game, trying to appeal to your uh, your guest, uh, and then you get more charming and you grow closer. It's really silly there's a bit if you do really well where you get an extra time with the tea to do other things like just kind of poke them <laughs> i don't like that i do chest. not like the creep shot mechanic you don't like to just observe you know your guests <laughs> it's the most bizarre thing i sat there on a train just like observing my guest um for like 20 minutes thinking is there more to this am i yeah. trying to unlock something here no it's just for a long time staring silently at the only other person <laughs> in the room <laughs> don't you love those three options if you do all the talk things right which the, t the first part of the tea time is fine right where it's like talk and it's like oh if i pay any attention at all while i talk to this character then i'll get all of these right and then there's the last one where it's just like a different screen and it's like, uh, you can admonish, commend, nod, blush, sigh, sip tea. No indication of what this other character will like. And I get it wrong 90% of the time. Well, because it's always the most what the fuck comment they make there at the end, too. It's like, we've had a really good tea time and they've loosened up enough to be like, hey, let me bounce something <laughs> off you. And every time I'm just like, man, uh, Alwa, I, I have no idea how to respond to that, man. I like, I, I laugh. <laughs> And he was like crushed, and I was like, "God damn it, that was gonna be a perfect tea time." Your dealer, a little bit, you know, like I don't know what to say to you, guy. Like I just don't. My favorite thing about the tea time is that everyone, when they say, "When you like get to choose the topic of conversation," everyone is also always happy with cats, and that just makes me happy. Yeah, that's just nice. Yeah, it's like I don't really know your personality at all, but it's your birthday, so let's talk about kitties. If you don't want to invite them to tea, maybe you're not that into them. You can just give them some flowers. You don't even have to do that. But everyone likes flowers in a far end. I mean, they're no, they're no owl feather. <laughs> no. So you're teaching a bunch of children that can't keep their hands on their shit. Um, well, straight up, okay. It's always funny to me. Also, in this game, every time you like the take people out into a battle and they are do like some extreme murder and then they come off and they're just like I'm 14 it's just really, <laughs> really funny well, this, <laughs> this is actually a thing about the game I really like in a, in a serious way is that one of my favorite forms of story is like the, the, the teenager realizing that being a teenager is a transition from childhood to adulthood and like power and murder and uh getting there getting into that like suddenly and way too early and probably the best example of this is season four of the wire where these kids start out like throwing water balloons full of piss and by the end of the season like they're dead or gangsters or just straight up assassins and like oh these kids are still 14 they're still those same kids but now they have that power um and you know there are a lot of great examples of this uh, veronica mars buffy uh on television it's a very common trope for teen tv um 
Game of Thrones obviously did a whole bunch with this and like the level of kind of escalation that you see across the course of this game is something that I think makes it seem makes it feel a lot darker in a good way than the kind of oh it's Fire Emblem but Harry Potter idea though Harry Potter apparently gets very dark as it goes on but uh there's like eight movies who has the time um so the thing is, it starts uh, off as quite intense anyway, even before it starts getting really yeah. grim. Like yeah. a lot of the dialogue is super intense. Yeah. Talking to uh, Hubert uh, is a real lesson in like intensity. He is terrifying. He will just follow you around the school and be like, "Right, uh, I've decided that you're too dangerous to leave alive." Uh, because you're now teaching our empress to be and he just constantly teases you with like assassination propositions and things like that he's a bizarre character and he's there's so many he's a fucking vampire (laughs) he is definitely a vampire you only ever see him at night he's randomly picking up women (laughs) the best thing about hubert is that he's having so much fun while he's torturing you he could not be having a better time knowing that you are in emotional pain it's fantastic (laughs) really bold character choice this is this is a really fun thing about playing as the black eagles who are kind of the the the, at least overtly darkest of the houses is that like hubert and edelgard they know that shit is going down they know that they are like on the verge of taking their power and they are like making plans for dealing with that while everyone else is doing their high school anime shit like they're pretty dark and this is another thing i like about this game is that like these kids are pretty fucked up in a lot of ways. They're not just like, I, you know, the happy-go-lucky anime girl or I'm the anxious anime girl or whatever. They have, like, actual reasons for that in their background beyond simply being the stereotypes as we talked about. Um, so there's always this kind of undercurrent of darkness. And it's like, when you're playing as the Black Eagles, they know that that darkness exists and is going to do something about it. Uh, so you get this, like, really interesting juxtaposition of the the kind of goofiness of a bunch of teenagers having fun and then some of them are ready for mass murder and some of them are doing mass murder on your command uh it's it it actually i think handles that surprisingly well it's it's not a it's not a ludonarrative dissonance or whatever it's actually this is what the game is it's about these teenagers becoming uh powerful people within the universe with their fucked up psyches and trying to do the best they can at what they're motivated to do, which is a a little surprising from a game that initially looks like this. So before we get into all the places the story goes, and I haven't seen seen it all the way through, uh, that's going to get pretty spoiler heavy. So I think I want to talk a little bit about just the tactics game in here because uh, I don't think I don't think it is the star attraction of this game in some ways like there, there's there's a version of this I suppose that is basically pure visual novel and I would probably be surprisingly down with that too but there have been enough good tactical battles in this that I am enjoying it and I'm also really curious if there's like a more appropriately challenging version of it after I finish this playthrough if there's maybe, you know, if I can sort of Goldilocks my way into the right, the ideal difficulty setting. Uh, but in there's only tr- two, so... <laughs> the, well, there, yeah. there are more. Uh, I will say I'm playing it in a hard 
now after playing on easy and i also found easy a little bit too easy for me and hard, hard gets really hard you guys hard gets uh really really annoyingly hard like almost too hard so if you're not liking normal you should try hard so when you say hard though like how are you finding it hard because it's not like really necessarily the enemy ai or tactics are great is it just that they're like hitting you a lot harder <laughs> no it is the tactics are different um it does sometimes feel a little bit cheaty like the sort of you know even on normal the enemy ai will prioritize taking out your archers and your healers just like a person would which is so irritating and it's like a lot a lot worse on on hard it's also kind of the the time jump difficulty between the two parts is like much more noticeable uh, I was playing on casual, and before the time skip, I was, like, using the Divine Pulse a lot, but I didn't lose anybody during battles, and after it, I just, like, it, they were hitting me harder, but it was also, like, they were, they, the enemy AI was, like, a little bit better at choking out, like, taking away the key parts of my team that I had sort of put together, and it was really uh, frustrating until I figured out how I needed to play against it in this iteration, but I'm not sure if I like it is the thing because there are these moments. It's like a little bit like when I'm playing Persona, I know that I'm going to be playing Persona and I'll just get one hit KO'd by something that is going to really piss me off and it'll be fine. Uh, this game, I'm not always ready to be one hit KO'd by something like emotionally. Like I'm not <laughs> always okay with that. The thing about the, the permadeath in... I, I've never been a huge fan of it in the series because I've never felt that it's actually benefited from it like the higher risk sure it makes you better it adds weight to the battles but it doesn't add weight to the battles because the moment you lose someone in this game nobody gives a shit it's they're gone who cares it's like there's no impact uh, and there's it doesn't feel like there's any change in the narrative or anything like that so it, it's almost as if it hasn't happened you've just like lost a tool in battle um, yeah and I, I don't like that. I want I, it shouldn't just be a punishment. I think there should be it should add something to the game rather than just subtracting. But as far as I can see, and I have like I lost Bernadette and I actually missed her so much I just went and started a new game. So that's the thing is like people who are like hardcore permadeath people also have all told me that like yeah, I play on permadeath, but I save scum everything and I will like restart battles if they don't go the way that I want them to. And it's like, well, I mean, I guess, you know, three houses is the one for you because this like divine pulse mechanic that allows you to turn back time in battles means you don't have to uh, save scum in a really annoying way anymore. Like, I feel like you might as well just have the hard difficulty level and then give everyone the divine pulse and have that be the game. But I know that's like against the spirit of what it is supposed to be i just feel like if you're gonna do that maybe you should have more branches in the narrative and what it, the thing i think is part of the problem here is that they don't really have a good balance for uh progression and enemy progression across the course of the game uh so like something like the instant one-shot permadeath of a pegasus swooping down and killing bernadetta is like that is the difficulty of the game. That's that's just like, you cannot take your archer and stick them out. And if you're not playing on permadeath, then it's just like, oh, whatever. I'm going to carry on and I'm still going to beat all these people. Um, it's The difficulty is 
pointed at like individual characters it's not pointed at your team it's not like an XCOM where if you lose one team member then you're like not a functional unit anymore um and I'm not sure that's wise, but it is the way that this game sort of is. So yeah, I'm I I have played the last several Fire Emblems with permadeath and never letting anyone perma die because I it feels like this is the game that or this is the way that the difficulty is supposed to be oriented, um, and it probably could be done a different way. I just am not sure that uh, these developers have that in them based on playing the last few Fire Emblems. They're Getting difficulty balance is a really hard thing, and yeah, that's that's no skin off their back, really. But in a way, the recruiting mechanic seems to be trying to uh, sort of patch over that sort of hole in the Fire Emblem formula as well. It's like if you run, I'm I'm playing uh, Blue Lines this time around. I'm getting to all these fights where I definitely need to have more axe users than uh, you start off with in the Blue Lines, and. I found that, like, since I uh, recruited basically all of the golden deer, I'm like, oh, I have, like, an extra axe user that I can throw into these battles now. And that is extremely convenient because otherwise, like, without having that missing piece, then my lone axe user that's a high enough level to do all these battles would end up having to carry the entire team on their back, which would make this entire battle a lot more difficult. But I, I also just don't think so the, the problem with that is the recruiting mechanic is like very opaque and it's very, very annoying to try to do it without any kind of guide or or something like that. And the new game plus is so much easier because you can just buy support levels with people. So it, it's just otherwise you can be like, I have such a high stat in like the stats that this person needs and I have like B level support with them and they so enjoy my house and I don't know why and it'll just drive you crazy. Sorry, I'm just <laughs> it just makes you upset. <laughs> I didn't even wait to jump into like so like spoilers and all the information I needed to get the right people. I'm like, I want the best class. <laughs> uh, and I just I knew I was gonna do it. Uh like I I like the idea of like figuring out who you need to give this lost item to, for instance, to uh, like who fits this item, and you learn about these characters, and so it's like a reward for getting to know uh, these kids. But I don't have time for that. That sounds exhausting. I don't even remember details about my actual friends, so I don't know how I'm going to do it about these kids that I'm teaching on my Switch. Uh, so yeah, I just immediately found a list that told me. I don't know what I would have done if I was reviewing it. Um, <laughs> you spread the trash out in front of them. I don't feel guilty. Uh, it's it's great. Uh, they're all they all love me. They're like, how do you keep finding these things and finding me the moment you find them? Like I'm just a really good professor. Me, a seven a seventeen year old guy that's just come off the street, number one professor. What Three a dinners a day. <laughs> Three, Rob? More like six. <laughs> we should explain that like one of the ways to make people like you and to get uh, your your class bonding, and not just your class, like everyone, um, including other teachers, is to just share a meal with them. And you can pick a meal that they like especially. And during certain events, there are special meals. Uh so you just invite a couple of people and you have a meal and then you do it again and then you do it again and then you waste all of your action points for the whole day just eating. Uh, and luckily, Byleth stays really slender no matter how much he eats. So it's fine. 
Sorry, some people haven't played The Sims and it shows. Anyway, I've min-maxed the entire monastery experience. It's extremely easy to optimize what you're going to do every day. If you play some dating sims, you'll figure it out. Moving <laughs> on. Uh, so, to go back to uh, like how the tactical side of the game is not all that interesting, the game that I keep thinking about when I, I look at this is uh, the first Mass Effect game. Uh huh. Because like it has the same sort of look where it's it's uh, got this very muddy 3D graphics. It's not an attractive game to look at outside of like the character portraits. Um, the monastery is is fairly okay, and the monastery like is the citadel of this game. Uh, but like all of the battle maps are just hideous. Um, the combat is not actually all that great, but it has this willing ambition to show like the collapse of the old order all happening within this particular form of game at a level that like i'm willing to buy in like this you know fantasy political drama with maybe some evil things rising from the past like this is my shit i'm gonna buy in like i am willing to say like i get that you are unable to like have an area that your character can walk around that's not the monastery, right? Uh, it doesn't even really have a world map. You don't move around the world map. Like, there is kind of a map that shows where the battles might be taking place, and that's it. But it does just enough to say, like, this is the kind of story we're telling you in or you out, and, like, it does good enough at telling that story that I'm in. Uh, so, even though... It just is such... Oh, you're sorry. You're no, I, I was trailing off. Go ahead. <laughs> you just, just got to jump in. Okay, well, I'll be more of a loudmouth. Um, it, it just is such a good job of communicating a feeling I think that a lot of people are already feeling, which is the feeling of being in the presence of a fire that's been going on for a long time. Uh, I was watching, I began watching and then realized it was written by Russell T. Davies and decided to stop watching uh, years and years that HBO and BBC drama about just uh, the worst things a liberal thinks can happen in the world. And it also wasn't very good in a lot of ways, but I could see why people were so into it because it also does the, a very good job of expressing some sort of basic part of our human experience that we have a difficult time articulating. And it's weird that the two people that figured out this level of panic are the guy who wrote some of the absolute worst seasons of Doctor Who I've ever seen in my life and <laughs> Nintendo. No love for RTD. Wow. I, the first season was great and then it just returns into the Rose and Ten show and I'm just like, I don't care <laughs> about these people. Anyway. Uh, um, now I'm like feeling like we need to do We Didn't Start the Fire about Fire Emblem and this is... Nope, we do not. <laughs> Nobody ever needs to do their their parody version of We Didn't Start the Fire. Everyone will briefly think, man, I'll bet I could really... And you could. Anyone could. Billy Joel did, which is why nobody else needs to do it. I don't want to leave Rowan's The Combat Isn't Great thing just unchallenged there, just hanging there, looming over the rest of the show. Because I think it is kind of great. Like, I think it's simple. I think it can be great. I think it often is not. Yeah, it has. Yeah, I think it can be great, but it doesn't come together. I guess we have to determine what, like, the com, like the combat bit might not be, but it's like the battles are like all involve all this management stuff as well, and I love that stuff. The growing my roster, the actual like, uh, 
like the whole holistic experience, I guess, leads up to these battles because you're growing your little army of teens to go and fight for their respective kingdoms or empires. And actually picking their classes, grinding, deciding what skills and abilities you want, like that's all really compelling stuff and really more. I will be up at like 4 a.m. on the sofa, glued to my Switch, grinding away doing that. And I do not have time to do that, but I still love it because it does actually, like you can immediately then just go in and see the impact of these choices, play with these new classes. And when you upgrade someone, it does feel quite quite a significant difference. They get pretty powerful. Uh, the actual tactics are kind of simple, but with the gambit system, with all the different uh, classes that they can evolve into, I think it's quite elaborate. When you say gambit system, I have flashbacks at really, really terrible JRPGs. So, I really dislike Final Fantasy twelve. Um, I have flashbacks to people convincing themselves a terrible X-Men character is actually the coolest, so... <laughs> uh, to, to, like, uh, what that system is, is basically, like, you have uh, a crew with you. You can attach uh, a vanguard or, like, some mages or some archers, and they will accompany uh, the character into battle. Uh, and they come with, like, little extra abilities. It gives you a little bit more flexibility with the characters and it also it's all tied to the authority skill so you can build characters around controlling these troops uh and there are little other things that you can do as well I, like the positioning is really important not just to build relationships but you get little critical boosts when you're near character uh, other characters that can also hit that enemy uh, it, it, there's stuff to dig into i don't think it's complicated uh so i think if you're going from like x like a really hard game of xcom or something to this uh you might not feel the tactics are really that meaty. Let's, let's stop comparing it to xcom because the difficulty on that is like even more of a mess uh let's go with darkest dungeon here yeah uh, i i feel okay so in respect to uh what was just said I do feel like the part that feels most tactically interesting to me is that sort of teaching and time management stuff because it does feel so built out of uh like otome games like uh tokimeki memorial girl side and princess maker where part of how you figure out how to make everyone the most the best they can be stats wise is through this weird juggling of time and your character's personal feelings and like does anyone ever feel really bad when your character has to specialize in two different other skills and you're like no i'm sorry but i need you to be a mortal savant so you're gonna be <laughs> studying swords and magic i put my hands <laughs> on my hips and i laughed in their face they, they're there to do what they're told i'm the teacher i had ferdinand come up to me and say hey you made edelgard a heavy warrior why don't you make me a heavy warrior? And I'm like, uh, fuck off. I made her a heavy warrior because I didn't have another heavy warrior. I need you to be my cavalry guy. I like it when they're like, I'm currently learning the sword and the bow. I want to become an assassin. Shall I learn the sword and the bow? <laughs> they're not always the brightest kids. Uh, but they're sweet. Except for the, you know, Hubert. Uh, so th there was a game that I was trying to think of for a while that we had talked about where I was like, this isn't that great of a game with the feedback systems in it, 
make me like unable to stop playing. Uh, and I finally remembered it was the Pathfinder Kingmaker game we talked about last year, where like it it has a whole bunch of like macro level strategy systems that come back around and re- like reflect what you have done in the like adventure role playing section. And like neither of those things are very good, but because they kept that feedback going, I just could not stop playing. I was also trying to play it and finish it for a review, which uh, was kind of a disaster because I probably put like 8,000 hours into it. But um, yeah, it, it had that kind of macro micro uh, feedback loop that Fire Emblem has and has it a lot better, but like when you're talking about the good things you like about the tactical combat, it's it's how the tactical combat reflects the strategic decisions that you have made less than the tactical combat decisions itself. And that's good. Like, that's fine when you have a game that's divided into these two things. Like, one of them usually has to be dominant and the other one should feed back into it. So when I say, when I compare it to, a, a like, the first Mass Effect, where the combat is not very good, but it all feeds back into this idea of, you know, the ultimate space RPG... Fire Emblem is getting into that idea of, like, the ultimate teenaged fantasy coming-of-age story, even though it is clearly unable to, like, get every part of that detail right, but it has that feedback loop that makes you want to want to engage with it. It does feel like not a, not necessarily a huge leap in terms of the tactics, but there's a, there's a lot more going on than there was the last time I played. Uh, it does feel a little bit more full-featured. There's a lot more to keep track of. And the actual uh, scenarios themselves are a little bit more interesting. The maps, although, as you point out, Rowan, they don't look yeah, great. No. Uh, there's there's at least some variety there. There's some interesting stuff going on. You might There might be, like, molten lava. There might be a monster or, like, specific enemies that you have to deal with to stop reinforcements coming in or, like, other stuff. Uh, so it's not just charging at enemies although you can just make everyone automatically attack which that like accessibility is something that it does really well there are a lot of options that like cut a lot of bullshit out if you want to just speed through a battle you can you can choose to make uh, a turn an automatic turn where everyone either like charges or like focuses or tries to unite with uh, i think it's with byleth it's like the commander um and you just let that go. You can even skip it, so you just see the results. Uh, and it's not always tactically the best thing to do, but sometimes if you need to get all the way across a map and there are like no enemies between you and the objective, you don't want to move each character individually. That's going to take ages. You've got like 10 people to, to deal with. I, I hadn't ever clicked on that, so knowing that there are like options of what to do is uh, especially... Uh, uh, an appealing thing for a, a future replay. Yeah, absolutely. With the new game plus, like <laughs> I'll be using that a lot. So it will surprise no one here uh, who, who knows how I tend to play games like this that I got myself into trouble with multiclassing. Um, I became look. I take my responsibilities as an educator very seriously. Uh, you need well-rounded. Like fully formed adults you're, you're, you're when, when, when they graduate here at Derek Mock. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's a lot like Hampshire, honestly. <laughs> you could just kind of study whatever you want. It's fine. Uh, it's also on the verge of closing. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, oh boy. <laughs> I'll get your American references. <laughs> uh yeah, uh, Fraser, basically there's a lot of small liberal arts schools that are kind of on the edge uh, because administrators got very well paid, but they didn't necessarily take care of the bottom line. It's, and, it's uh, not as funny as your laughter made it sound. Well, yeah. well it's, it's personally quite funny because I went to like one of the first ones that closed, and Hampshire is one that I certainly considered, and um, I think i know a few games writers who actually went there and then gita <laughs> is at what's probably the next one that's going to close no they have they have a huge endowment and i hope they don't close no but. it's because of t- the inventor of aluminum foil went there they're they're <laughs> living forever baby like, like, their endowment's huge yeah so but the point is i became convinced of a couple things one byleth could do everything so Byleth and and Byleth is a better teacher if Byleth is like experienced in the thing they are teaching. You gotta know you you have to be an authority if you're if you're going to presume to teach the skill the the art of the lance. You have to be good with the lance. So yes, Byleth had an enchanted sword that did like incredible sword damage, but by God, he was going to learn the lance so he could teach Dimitri and Didu about the lance. And I ended up having a problem where I had a lot of characters who were decently high level and yet weirdly lacking in skill or aptitude in any of their any of their core like uh class competencies. And so like violence Pardon? You didn't focus on the fundamentals. You just raised a bunch of dumbasses. Like <laughs> Who can do who can do anything? Or not reasonably okay. But yeah, so it it has it, it, like we've run into some snags. Uh, Based a bunch of game writers. Oh. <laughs> Look at them! Look at them! Were you... they all in gifted programs? <laughs> They're paralyzed by anxiety. Oh, they cannot take a career path. Uh, like the person who I really I was so proud of. Um, Basically, my greatest failure turned into one of my great successes. Uh, there's this character, Ingrid, who oh, Ingrid. is hellbent on becoming, like, a chivalric knight. That's the ideal she's, she, she is always held up, held up as her, as her goal, her ideal. Uh, there's some hints that actually her real calling might be magic. Uh, every character has, like, a hidden potential you can unlock through training that reveals they can actually go in a completely different class direction. Or can sort of blend skills in some interesting ways for a for a higher level class. But Ingrid, I did a masterful job of giving her no real strengths. Um but she sort of like backed her way into being a really good Pegasus writer and having like really high evasion and then decent skill at just about every kind of melee weapon. And what I realized is I could just fly Ingrid into the middle of any enemy formation and she would kill all of them on counterattacks. She could not do anything. Like if I was like Ingrid, go after that person. She would like hit them for like an eighth of their health bar. But if I flew her into just like a pile of enemies and they all just aggroed on her, they would like whiff on her constantly or hit her for one, for one hit point point. And then she would use whatever she was holding from her last move, be it an axe, a lance, whatever, and just start, like, chopping people down. Uh, And 
it was kind of interesting to me to see like how there are all these different for the I think the first the thing that frustrates me about this game is that you don't actually have to be that good. You don't actually have to like know what you're doing with these kids to make them work. Like you can largely fake it and just walk up to the enemy and and, and chop them down. But it is it's a little frustrating because you can see there's a lot of different ways to build these characters. You can swap their different uh, skills in and out to give them a very particular build. But you can do that at will. So once a skill is there, you can just decide what skills equipped for the battle. And then if you're fighting a different type of battle, like you're fighting monsters, you can swap those skills out and basically sort of soft respec them uh, based on those. You can also, their special abilities, you can swap those in and out. And so there's a lot of possibilities for these really granular uh, builds for your characters that will translate into tactical action. But the game almost never demands or even rewards that, which is, I think, probably my big frustration with it. The other part of it is... When this when it does throw together a good battle, there's certain tricks that I wish it were used a little more. Um, you get a couple battles in the fog where you have no map visibility, and those are kind of dicey because in every other battle, it's really easy to put sort of your your tanky characters up front and just have them buzz saw through the enemy. But there was one really good battle I had where I basically had to protect. Um, you know, the, 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 the Pope character in this game, Rhea. Uh, the, the Rhea Nash uh, paralog. Yeah. Yeah, we're like, we were in this forest, and like these, uh, well, in, Rhea's term for them was apostates. Uh, I am less convinced. This this all started to feel this all started this started to feel a little bit more like Baltic Crusade than than I was more than I was comfortable with. Uh, but nevertheless, these guys keep like sort of pouring out of the mist from all sides, and they just keep spawning in because there are characters out there on these like spawn points creating new enemies. And so I ended up like it was a really interesting battle because all my faster characters were rushing out there into the fog trying to find these guys. But then enemies kept slipping through and getting into what had been traditionally my backline characters. And they got really dicey. Like I had uh sort of my my healers and archers who are just not specked out for frontline combat suddenly getting cut down and I was starting to really have to lean on the time rewind to figure out like my like how am I going to prevent these three characters who are all one hit away from getting killed how am I going to keep them alive through this turn uh and I wish there was more of that in in this game because when you when you have it when you have a battle like that it's like oh this can actually be a really tense and demanding tactics game but for the most part you can get really far by just sort of pointing at someone being like just cut your way to cut your way to them and then use a special attack and chop them down and that works there's also a structural thing here that uh, is important to mention we've we've sort of talked about like how the game is constructed but to be a little more specific about it uh you basically play two years with a time skip and each month there is a big plot battle uh so the core construction of it is you build up your characters across a month fight a plot battle and like each week you have a specific choice of you know am i going to you know go talk to people am i going to go grind levels or am i going to like do 
one of the other kind of helpful things. Um, and this means that there's always kind of this time limit that's hanging over you both week to week and month to month and across the whole game where you know, like, there's only, you know, 20 odd missions that are going to occur here. Am I really going to have enough time to build the characters the way I want without just endlessly grinding the random levels or random battles? Um, and like, I, I wanted to be like you and be like, oh, I want to go find all these characters' secret hidden classes and, you know, make it so that I can swap them out. But the battles weren't hard enough on normal mode that this was actually like, relevant to me and they weren't actually difficult enough except for some of the embedded ones like that uh like that paralogue uh that it was just like no i'm just gonna have these characters kind of be the default and if i feel like switching them around maybe i will and see how far this takes me and if i really want to do a hard mode version where i you know make these characters all super characters then i will have to like commit myself to grinding and making this worthwhile and that's probably where i will stop playing the game like if i'm honest about how i play these things like uh those options exist but they're either so unnecessary or they're gonna take so much work within like a different difficulty context that i'm just like is this going to work? And maybe it will. I, I guess I will find out when I when I go for the Blue Lions after I finish my Black Eagle run. But so I think at this point we got to get into it a little bit, right? Like plot, plot, plot. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I was so I got to the sort of uh, second act climax, I guess you'd call it, of the Blue Lions yesterday, and it dawned on me that I have to play this game again because I am so curious how this story looks from one of the other three, like one of, one of the other two uh, major protagonists perspectives. Uh, and Did so you find out the identity of the flame emperor. Yes. The okay, end of yeah. the, yeah. Uh, is it the same no matter who you are, who you're playing as like, is the flame yes. emperor always okay. Um, yeah, so we're going to get into that. Uh, so First, who did we all play as? Blue Lions. Black Eagles. Black Eagles. I played as Golden Deer, and now I'm playing Blue Lions. And how far did you get, Fraser? Um, I think I just got to the time skip as well, just like Rob. Okay, so so we're all on roughly the same spot. I'm like stuck on the battle. Not stuck, but paused on the battle right before the time skip. Uh, which is actually like a long and difficult battle, the first one that I have faced in the game, which is interesting. But uh, yes, so we, we've all seen the big reveal and we know the time skip is coming and we have played all the different houses yeah. together. Uh, and it, so you know, but for people listening to this, this is kind of your chance because I, I do think there are things in this game that while I don't generally believe like I, like I hate spoiler culture. I get why you'd want to sort of go into this naive and, and see how a lot of this is going to unfold and have these moments land for you uh, as they sort of happen organically. So this is a very good time uh, to hit stop. If, you, if you've if you heard enough, I, I, I recommend this game. Uh, if you don't want to know too much about the plot, 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 uh, this is where you should probably hit eject. Uh, because... So I have no idea, like I like I genuinely had no idea that one of the 
protagonist you could pick turns out to be maybe the big bad of this story? Um, okay, so I, yeah, there's more stuff going on. Here's the thing is that when, so when I wrote my review, uh, some fine individuals were upset that I mentioned that, as is the premise of the game, uh, everyone that you don't have in your team will die on the other routes. Uh, and so I changed that. But people were, were saying some fun stuff, like, I can't believe you just you know, wrote the second, the biggest spoiler of the whole game in the first, the second paragraph. And all I want to say is, like, there's so many things that happen after this point that are absolutely out of control. So you don't even have any idea what's going to happen to you. And it's so difficult waiting for everyone to catch up and play this game. It's just, like, the plot really goes in a way that is so, uh... Every time it actually makes a brave choice, I'm, like, so happy and pleased because I forgot the video games could do interesting narrative choices, especially in, like, a tactics game in a series where, like, the last one in the series that I played just did the least interesting thing as, like, a matter of, like, principle for the most part. <laughs> it's a good way to put it on page. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm truly astounded, like... They, yeah, one of the main characters ends up being the flame emperor, and that was the first point in the game where I was just, I had no one to talk about this with, because I was reviewing it, and the only other person I knew who was reviewing it was Austin, he was way farther behind than I was, and so I had to just sit there and be like, uh-huh, yeah, it was so interesting, Austin, I'm trying to, like, not freak out. But then even from there, like, you learn, even from there, once the characters have taken what feels like a definitive moral stance, that there isn't even more going on that complicates this, and it just is so much fun. So it's uh, one of the things that I think goes back to like all the mistakes that Fates made um, is that there are actually four ways to play through the game. There's a huge choice in the middle of the Black Eagles thing where you get to decide whose side you're really, really on. And I ended up taking the kind of normal, I'm going to stick with, like, everybody else choice. Because all the impressions I got was, like, the true ending is if you go join the main character who goes off and does their own thing. Um, which is sort of the way that Fates worked, where you had the two different two different playthroughs and then the real playthrough after you had done those two. Uh, and like, this is going back to what I said about how they're trying to solve this problem of like replayability. The, the idea that like there is possibly what might be considered a true playthrough or a real ending. That's just kind of happens to be on a house that you could have picked on a whim. Uh, so like, are the black Eagles, the advanced mode house or like, is this just random? It's all, it's interestingly confusing. Um, and like, I would have to play through it four times to figure out if this is, if my read as like a video game structure analysis person is accurate, but I'm actually motivated to play through it four times because of this. So one of the things that came up earlier was this idea that, um, Ron, you tell about sort of this game sort of getting that, being a teenager is this transitional point and it's sort of touching on the ways that these characters exposure to uh, both violence and increasingly high real world stakes 
uh, sort of puts it in this tradition of really effective, uh, really effective, really memorable story, coming of age story, dark coming of age stories uh, across media. But one of the things I really dig about Blue Lions is that actually a lot of these characters went through that before this game begins. And I feel like they're kind of distinct as a house. Because of that, I haven't played enough of the others, so like I can be wrong. Black eagles are fucked up too. They got they got their they got their dark motivations too. And this is this is a thing that I kept noticing is that the more I learned about every character, the more they have that like thing in their past that can switch them over to to being messed up in a hurry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, the, the the golden deer are fine. They're just having a nice time. I'm so curious. What do they have to do? Because it appears to me that the major conflict here, the massive dramatic tragedy at the heart of Fire Emblem, is that Edelgard and Dimitri end up at Daggers Drawn. And in some ways, like, Edelgard has been maybe the person behind a lot of the worst things that have happened to Dimitri, or at least he believes that she is ultimately the person responsible for the worst things that have ever happened to him. And all of this is built up into the history of their relationship and the way their royal houses tie to each other. And then there's Claude from from Eastside, who doesn't even go here. (laughs) So the thing about Claude, Claude is secretly like low-key for me, one of the more interesting like uh, playthroughs because it emphasizes that he is an outsider like a lot of his like thing that he is trying to accomplish which is surprisingly close to Edelgard's goals also is uh has to do with a feeling of being other eyes and the feeling of being outside like his base motivation is wanting to make sure that no one ever feels that way ever again he wants to arrest the ceo of racism.com like that's his whole thing and it makes me so happy like, okay, jack like, is canceled like, edelgard is like crypto fash and then dimitri like goes murder crazy for a little bit and then claude's over here like y'all i mean i guess you guys are having fun i want to end racism edelgard has her reasons okay <laughs> She's had a lot going on. Yeah, I mean, they all have been through some shit. Like, some real shit. Classmates remembered Edelgard as charismatic, promising, but with a darkness. <laughs> None of them could have imagined, however. Yeah. It, God. <laughs> unless they talk to her, ever. Uh, yeah, she, like, Edelgard, from... Edelgard, this is my really weird best friend, Hubert. <laughs> Have you met my vampire? Uh, that relationship goes way deeper than just best friend. It's more like a sort of symbiotic relationship. It's very... It's, it can't be healthy. God, everything's so creepy in this game. Like, <laughs> not, but not just creep. like... So one of, the, one of the things that I really dug in Blue Lions that made me really uncomfortable is this notion that um, for, a, for a number of them... They've already actually been through a pretty nightmarish war slash ethnic cleansing. Like, the thing in the background of all a lot of these characters is a number of them lost family members in this, like, mass casualty uh, terrorist attack slash mass assassination that sort of wiped out a bunch of the leadership of the Kingdom of Fargus and uh, specifically Dimitri's, like, parents. 
and his buddy Felix's uh, elder brother, Glenn. And so in the wake of that, basically, like, everyone decides, based on really sketchy evidence, that it's this ethnic minority's fault that this happened. Clearly, it is, you know, hey, the the tragedy happened uh, in in this place uh, called Dusker. So uh, it's probably the Dusker people who are responsible for this. And they basically just raise it to the ground and, uh, like, politically shatter uh, the Dusker and, like, demolish the, like, scorch the land. And then it sounds like also physically relocate a lot of the Dusker away from their from their homeland. Uh, so it's it's this really awful thing that all the, a, a lot of these kids were deeply involved in before they came to the school. And so the weird thing is for them, one of the real tensions undergirding blue lions is that this is almost like a timeout. Like they're, they're actually, a lot of these kids feel like they've taken part in just outright war crimes before coming to the school. And now they're transitioning into school, but then they're going to go back to, being leadership of this kind of militaristic, brutal regime, uh, and how they are all wrestling with that is really fascinating and went places that I was not expecting. Like Dimitri is sort of presented at first as kind of your your perfect uh, chivalric ideal, uh, sort of the, the 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 good wise king figure. And one of his best friends, Felix, from the first is out there saying, like, no, man, don't believe what that guy's selling. He's evil. Like, like you have not seen what he's capable of. I have. I'm telling you, he's bad news. Um, and the game increasingly gives you evidence that Dimitri is, in fact, like, not just scarred, but maybe has also because of the lessons he's internalized from his experiences, maybe he is no longer fit to rule, right? Maybe he is no longer somebody who can be fully trusted because there are certain things he believes and is fixated on that make him really scary when it's unlocked. And boy, does that start to hit at the end of the end of act two. Have you seen him post time skip yet? Yep. Oh boy. He, Yeah. yeah, a lot of stuff happens to that little boy. My neighbor played as Blue Lions, and I, like, walked and watched her, like, right after the time skip, and I'm like, oh, wow, that, that twink is, uh, that twink is now a goth twink. <laughs> that twink found Hot Topic. Yeah. <laughs> he, I, it's just, uh, I, I, the, the way that the characters grow in that five-year span is always so character appropriate and the way it really um, i'm really amazed at how well rounded all those writing is like you really see the way that these people have changed based on the way that the particular region they come from is handling the current political crisis like uh lorenz's father from the golden deer who is obnoxious however was a very powerful magician uh, he had to grapple with the fact that his father, who was ruling uh, the Gloucester territory that he comes from, was actually on the other side of the war, was allying, um, allying with the Empire as opposed to the Kingdom and the Alliance. And so that becomes like part of what he has to deal with post-time skip. And it just, 
it it creates this really interesting world with a lot of different political machinations through how these young characters are talking about them in very simple language it's easy to understand it's sort of like the the antithesis of all those fantasy novels that come with maps in the beginning where you're just like one or two mm-hmm. chapters is like a description of geography like i feel like i really understand this this world after playing this game and i'm fascinated by it when rob was talking about the dusker thing like I, i'd seen some of the uh blue lions people talking about like the dusker crisis or whatever and you know there's a lot of mentions about how there's racism against the dusker people and uh, that's the racist house right the, the bridged people I yeah <laughs> i i mean i don't know i haven't played it but yeah, that there is there's a lot of issues there that like are only barely like at the surface. But like Rob and Gita, you haven't played as the Black Eagles, and Gita, you might have gotten this later in the game. But did you hear anything about like Edelgard's family beforehand? Because like there's this huge, yeah, there's this huge fucked up political crisis in the Empire that all these children are kind of uh, reflecting. I was like, and, why am like, I throwing my lot in with this house? They're maniacs. <laughs> <laughs> So, so have you heard about all of that, Rob? No, like, because th- there's only hints that, like, Edelgard... Like, what I've gotten is that Edelgard has a connection to Dimitri's house, and at one point kind of showed up in his life, and it's kind of hinted, like, was she on the run? Was there, like, some dynastic stuff happening that's caused this weird dynastic relationship with the house of Fargus and the fact that she basically had to hide out from the Empire for a year? Yeah. Yeah, so basically what happened at the Empire, like when Edelgard was a child, is that all of the nobles except for Hubert's dad, I think, uh, like went and basically did a coup against the rightful emperor, her father, and then experimented like fuck on all of the kids who every single one of them died except for Edelgard, who ended up with like a super magic power because of this. And her mega crest. What? Yes. And so (laughs) she went, I don't remember, I think after that she went and fled to the kingdom for a while while these nobles had their coup underway and then went back when the situation had calmed down. So yeah, that's what happened there at the so she has, you know, very legitimate reasons for being mad at everybody. But because this is Fire Emblem, this is given to you as, like, a little cutscene aside. She's having a wee conversation. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how many of the support conversations are, like, not actually people building friendship. But yep. <laughs> people... Usually the first, like, the sea level is like, hey, I fucking hate you. Hey, I fucking yeah. hate you, too. These characters are okay. reached sea level of support. <laughs> Yeah, or they're like, hey, I'm just monumentally fucked up. I am traumatized beyond all belief. Here's some of my baggage. Now fuck off. The structure seems to be like, here's a funny character trait. And then the next one, it's like, here's why this character trait relates (laughs) to something fucking horrible. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I'm I'm interested in finding out what the Golden Deer's like really fucked up, tragic background is. Well, they have to do a lot with Elmira, so like you end up going through this entire story, which is about how it's bad to be racist. Like I'm serious. <laughs> like it, it deals with like the border conflict things that are happening, which is I guess why it reminded me so potently of current political like crises in the world. It was because it ended up being very explicitly about like he want like he's like basically an anarchist. He wants to dissolve all borders. Like, that's his whole thing. 
Like, he's been so scarred by the experience of racism that he's decided that... But he's like a rich merchant prince. (laughs) Only kinda. (laughs) Buddha was rich, too. Yeah, I mean, he... His background, he's mixed race, so it's not that he's a mixed, uh, a rich merchant prince. His father was, but or his mother was, but his father was Almir, and he grew up in Almira his entire life. And so he was, uh, people were racist against him in Almira because his mother was from the rest of the continent, and they're racist against him here because Almirians are considered like a bestial, primitive race, and. He's decided rather than taking it out on other people, he wants to figure out whether it's possible to have a world without racism. I, like it's it's very it's much more positive than the other things, but it is like this extreme world altering like change to this universe that is so it's Claude is low key the most interesting one I feel. Because what does he not... identify as the thing that he's got to go after? Because like because Edelgar becomes convinced that the church itself is basically been the puppet master that has caused a lot of what's gone wrong in this world. She's a, she's like, the church has got to go. Specifically, the church is the embodiment of the magical class system. Yeah. Um, so, for him, he just basically sees Edelgard's war. Like, basically, you find out who the Flame Emperor, Emperor is, and then... Claude's like, well, shit, that sucks. And then the time skip happens, and Claude in the interim has basically been using his political power to uh, try to unite the the two kingdoms to take down the empire, so that he can, he and the rest of the alliance can, therefore, in sort of the after the end of the war, uh, fight the real enemy together, which is being racist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So most of these games have, you know, it's a common RPG trope where, like, there is a true ancient enemy that everyone must unite against. And finding out that for Claude, the true ancient enemy is racism is, is, that's, that is potent. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's funny, exactly, but yeah. It's like, I mean, you, you first, you're like, excuse me, what? And then you think <laughs> about the other story, the parts of the story, right? Like, it, it all fits in to show a world that is actually a completely real world that has its own mini dramas and mini crises in every single region. So the Dusker thing is one example of the way that the society is racist. It's clearly like an unjust uh, massacre. It's it's disgusting what happened. Um, and then you talk to Petra a little bit. If you get any of her like uh, support conversations, you find out that she's less so a willing visitor of this co- of the empire than a hostage of the empire through a deal that her her father made and she's for and she's from this country called Brigitte. And then when you do the Golden Deers play like like storyline, you learn just sort of the depth of the racism that uh Claude has experienced. And then you also hear like when you have the other characters in Golden Deer interface with uh Cyril, who is another character who's Almirin. Um, you understand more deeply how this this uh, the alliance's geographical position with the country of Almira has led to these intense border skirmishes that have created like these racist stereotypes of what it's like, you know, what the people from those countries are are like. And it's it's for me like digging into picking through all these sort of threads is what made the plot of 
this game so interesting because I felt like with each new uh, piece of information which is delivered these very naturalistic ways I was uncovering a new aspect of what it would be like to actually live in that world that I wouldn't have known otherwise this this sort of goes back to how it's fixed fate's problems where fate seemed to be like deliberately withholding information because it wanted you to buy more um, and then what it did give you wasn't very interesting whereas this game is like here's another breadcrumb here's another breadcrumb you want the whole piece i'll just keep on playing it's all here for you and th- that's just so much more motivating and like awakening like was just a pretty straightforward fantasy story with a little bit of a little bit of politics added to it um and it had no kind of gigantic choices that unless i'm misremembering something like you know that was just play through this game and beat every chapter um whereas this game is like oh i actually have a legit choice to make like i i had to choose whether i was going to join with edelgard or stick with the church for a while um and like so black eagle <laughs> eagles can just fork like that yes black eagles there there, there are four playthroughs of this game not three fascinating um at, at chapter 10 or so uh edelgard mm-hmm. says hey i have some uh business to take care of in the empire you want to come and then the game is like this choice will determine how the rest of the game plays out. Uh, so I assumed, apparently quite accurately, that her, her thing that she had to go do in the Empire was go murder literally everyone who stood in her way. Um, <laughs> I love her. <laughs> she's playing after... I just finished Persona 5 after like a million years not that long ago. And like they do similar things. You've got like a group of young people who've had some dark stuff going on in their lives, tackling this crazy world of adults and unearthing some really grim stuff, but there's a lot of slapstick shenanigans in the middle. But Persona 5 had fuck all to say. Uh, by the end, it, it just felt really simplistic, and I didn't think the characters had actually grown in uninteresting or like they hadn't like matured they still felt quite one note i had a really good time with it but i didn't feel it had any sort of impact on me but even having just gotten to like the the this the time switch part in fire emblem i feel like these characters are way more fleshed out way more interesting and complicated and sympathetic than anyone in persona 5 yeah, I'm pretty much with you. I feel like the it makes a great effort for you to understand every single character's point of view. And part of the reason why it works so well is that they took out the romance aspect. Because I feel like the structure of the support conversations had to all operate like a romantic comedy, basically. Mm-hmm. So, because they all have to be possibly the prelude to a romantic interaction. Whereas here... You can get two characters up to A-rank support, and maybe they'll have their epilogue will be about those two characters going into the future together because they're the closest to each other. But it might not be a romantic, like, ending for them. In fact, I had, like, several sort of, like, hetero life bro, like, guys at the end credits for me, which was more interesting than... And then they all got married. <laughs> They all ship their babies through time like the X-Men. It's so... The baby... Mar- the thing in Awakening is that they wrote it into the plot and they were like, clearly like, this is this game's gimmick. And then in Fates, it just kind of also happens. And it's so yeah. weird. Yeah, that's that's another major problem with it is that Awakening is a time travel story and Fates is just like, yeah, we want you to have the babies. I did love that um, in Awakening, though. I really did like... Oh, no. It was it's, so... It was, 
like you weren't just building these characters; you were like uniting them to build their offspring. It was bizarre. Oh, Awakening was fantastic. <laughs> Did not expect Fraser to take out the pro eugenics position, but. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's I did. Eugenics uh, is fine in video games, all right. <laughs> uh, but like Awakening, I think as a game is a lot more interesting and experimental. But like this game has that kind of narrative, tragic aspect of it, and fully fleshed out world that I think makes it probably a more appealing experience overall. Uh, but yeah, I, this is not a complaint about Awakening, uh, which had its had its issues, but it's still a uh, you know, kind of genre-defining game, and this is just going in a different direction that's maybe not so overtly exciting, but it's still really fucking good. So, Gita, I think you'd probably be best positioned to answer this, uh, but it's something that's been occurring to me. Is the game maybe also too sympathetic in places to the point where it has trouble identifying villains actual bad acts because one of the things that's interesting here is that a lot of these characters do have backstories that are affecting and if they don't entirely if they don't justify a character's behavior they at least provide it context and a sort of sympathetic significance but does that also then maybe make some people who are doing heinous shit a little too sympathetic a little bit too much they're allowed to be too much the protagonist in a story that involves people committing actual crimes in case, and in some cases like war crimes. And does that become a problem as you, as you see the story through to the end? Um, I mean, I think that the game does a very good job of creating anime reasons for people creating, doing war crimes, which will probably leave people feeling a little bit cold. Uh, but then there were, I think instances where some behavior was justified to the point of not of being, like just a little gross just a little bit gross um but at the same time it strives to make to provide everyone's point of view in such a non-judgmental way that i never really felt like it was telling me how i should feel Mm -hmm. which was something that i at least appreciated like with sylvain sylvain's whole thing is that he uh sleeps with every girl like that's literally his entire character trait is that he like has sex with every woman and it turns out his reasons for being that way are like pretty fucked up honestly and he like one point says that he knows he's being unfair but like he kind of hates women and which is such a wild thing to to have a character say in a video game um it's because of his crest like he knows that women are attracted to him because of his crest but his crest caused him his brother to try to murder him so he has a very complex like relationship with this thing that he knows makes him like a as a, a symbol that makes him like a better person or a more important person than everyone around him uh and like at the end i was left like feeling very conflicted because it was like at least he knows that it's wrong but it didn't really end like with him being like and i'm gonna strive to treat women with more respect because because it can't also because the rest of the game has these interactions that are scripted in cutscenes that the player might see so if they have significant character growth in the um in the support conversation, it can't be reflected in the rest of the game. Uh, so there were like moments like that where you're just sort of left with like, well, this guy sucks. However, I have to just deal with the fact that he sucks now, <laughs> which I don't know. I, it feels a little bit like the dedication to 
it doesn't want to make make every anyone into an explicit hero villain, but it wants to ask you directly how you feel about things. But I feel like when it comes to like maybe there could be a little bit more of a discussion about how Edelgard's plan is really like not I mean, she wants to take down the church. I'm all for it. God is never good in these video these kinds of video games. But maybe all the murder she does in order to do that is wrong. I like though that this is a game that takes the the trope of the the horny like misogynistic character and still gives them like a compelling backstory though. Like yeah, yeah. in the end do like this guy still fucking sucks. But that's an interesting story to go down. He works yeah. way better than that character from Valkyria Chronicles 4. Um, oh, I've, I've not played it yet, but I've heard the fuck his face. Yeah, like there, there was a character that's just the, the, that is a game that can't figure out what it wants to do. Uh, it's a bit sort of a Kaji situation in like uh, Evangelion, where you have a character that look at Rob dropping the anime references. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's this stuff is all front of mind because uh, I've been through hell, um, <laughs> but. Like, there was a case of, here we had a misogynist character, and all the misogyny was just played for laughs. And then it was like, ah, now we had that comedy beat where he harassed a teammate, but now he's back to being a serious, substantive sad boy uh, that we have to really engage with his pain. And this is this is the real him. That other stuff is just, is just sort of comedy beats. Sylvain is interesting because it all feels cohesive. Like, there is a character there. That you that that is sort of thought through, uh, and does have some surprising depth in places, but also seems beyond reform, both by personal choice, but also maybe narrative structure that he's trapped in. It has a subtle gameplay effect as well, apparently, because if he's not in your uh, class and you're playing a female bio, yep. then he will automatically like you go like, "Hey, do you want to join?" He's like, "Yeah." <laughs> Okay, uh, this is so good, guys. And then he's like, are you sure? And I'm like, nope. Y'all, I... This was such a good beat. Like, he's just such a horny narcissist. So right after the Flame Emperor is revealed, and everyone's sort of meeting and having that discussion of, like, taking it all on board, and everyone's like, Ash is like, I'll fight to the death for this place. And Dimitri's like, all my PTSD is coming back, and I'm going to kill everyone. I'm fine, don't worry about me. Sylvain just gets sort of thoughtful, and he's like, man, I can't believe all of this is happening, because I didn't sleep with Edelgard. <laughs> I love that one so much! <laughs> he's, he's, the, he's the type of dude that's like, uh, you know that meme that's been resurfacing recently, that's like, no, don't kill yourself, you're so sexy, haha. <laughs> <laughs> yes that's just who he is as a human being like okay but if you play through edelgard's side which when she talks about how she can't find anyone to date maybe he's right <laughs> uh if the the thing that really i'm i'm kind of actually curious how this is all gonna unfold with the blue lions the thing that's been sort of stressing me out is the fact that Everything I've seen about Dimitri increasingly feels like it's the origin story for a supervillain. Um, and his entire... Like, basically, his his main retainer, uh, Dudu, is Dusker. 
and is fanatically loyal to Dimitri because he's like, Dimitri saved my life. Uh, he didn't let me get exterminated with the rest of my people. And there's a point where Felix, who basically hates Dimitri, is like, this logic is completely fucked. Um, you know, he basically tries to tell, like, uh, to do that, like, dude, the Cossacks work for the Tsar is basically the, the pitch he gives him. And Dudu's like, no, Dimitri's going to fix all this when he's king. And there's some indication that, like, Dimitri's allowing a regency to sort of run things before he takes the throne and while he finishes at school. But there's this real element of, like, Dimitri is in a position where he, where if he really wanted to change things, he could. But he's kind of been ducking that. And then, like, what you realize that what he really wants to do is, like, crush people's faces with a mailed fist. <laughs> He loves that, man. <laughs> yeah, it's it's deeply uncomfortable. So I'm really curious uh, what what's sort of in store for for him and and, and all these characters. Um, and that that I think is maybe as we wrap up here, that's the thing that has really made this probably like one of the one of my favorite games of this year so far is that it actually does deliver on the promise of its premise and its characters far more than than I was expecting. Uh there there was there is so much more going on both with who these characters are than themselves and then the issues they're kind of symbolizing and analogizing analogizing that uh Three Houses ends up being kind of a fascinating game where I was expecting mostly just a diverting one right like i'd heard so much about fire emblem being the tactics dating sim series that that's kind of what i came in expecting and here i've got <clears throat> some really interesting conversations between characters uh of completely different opposing like worldviews and and ethical systems and it all like it, it it all works and feels really natural without being purely didactic I think it's a tragedy, and I am always much more interested in tragedy in my fantasy worlds than I am in, like, just pleasantness. Um, you know, I have, at times, loved my Game of Thrones. Uh, give me Dragon Age 2 over Inquisition any day. Uh, this is along those lines in a way that was quite surprising, and, like, also look at us on the Strategy Game podcast talking, like, 75% about narrative and this game deserves that it's it's built on that like this is not just because there isn't a strategic component it's because the narrative is by far the most interesting part of it and like both of those things are at least mild surprises given my experience with fire emblem in the past which is you know more the the pleasant diversion as you say yeah it's like the best game on the switch fuck zelda uh, <laughs> yes, you heard it here. Um, it's it's so good. I cannot stop playing it. Every I I'm, I I'm frustrated whenever I have to play something else for work and it drags me away. Uh, I'm yeah, I'm obsessed with it, and it is largely because the story and the characters. I love the management. I like the the fights, but it's the con compelling yarn it's spinning that has really taken me aback. I've always liked the series, but it's never 
its narratives never gripped me like this before. Uh, and I can't really remember many of the characters outside the ones that reappear every time there's a new Smash Brothers. Uh, so, uh, but these ones will stick around in my head for a long time, I think. Yeah, it's just truly a marvelous game. I was excited for it. I got to play some of it at E3, and so I was like, okay, like a lot of these things seems like it'll appeal to me, but like what you see at E3 is a highly curated little slice of something, so I tried not to get my hopes up. But then, like as soon as I started playing it, I was like, oh no, this game is like magic. Like this game is doing something very special with its narrative and the way that it makes sort of these really complex systems appealing to people that are more focused on the anime nonsense that happens is really kind of wonderful. It just, despite being a game about a lot of horrible things that are happening to children, it actually manages to be a game that I've enjoyed like literally every single second of playing. I don't know how they managed to make uh, horrible things happen to teenagers so appealing, but I would like to have more of it, please. Horrible things happening to teenagers are the best stories. <laughs> <laughs> that may that that may actually be true, given uh, given some of the series we, we've mentioned. But uh, yeah, this this has been ever since I started playing. Since I think I'm I broke like forty four hours in this game today, and. I didn't have 44 hours to put into this game. Like when I, you know what I mean? Like those are 44 hours that probably should have gone other places, and I do not care. I, I hear good things about Planetfall, but man, this is this is it. I haven't played a new game since I started playing this for review, and I started playing it like three weeks out. Wow! And you, even on even on the second playthrough, you're still like hell yeah! I'm oh you're God. like you still got the momentum. It feels like a brand new game. Like as soon as you start, well, one they give you a lot of like anti frustration features. Like again, you can you can buy support levels basically, and you can also uh, which makes recruiting people easier. So that makes it easier to do like all the monastery stuff, so you don't feel as overwhelmed when you do that stuff. You can also buy professor levels, so you can have like a lot more activity points from the start of the game. But it, it also just like it is a completely different story. It just is. You'll start off seeing some of the same events just from a slightly different perspective, and then it just goes in a completely different direction after a time skip. And so I feel like I'm having a new experience, like different maps, even different battles. Like it's it it is a unique experience every time you play it. So I've hit a hundred hours, and I'm gonna play probably a hundred more. It's I'll be up there with the Sims and Dwarf Fortress. Perfect. Yeah. I, I got pretty mad at it a week or so ago because I was the unbalanced difficulty was just like not working for me, and I guess I was probably also in a bad mood for totally unrelated reasons. Um, and then like I gave it a day, and I came back and was like, "Oh, all right, this is perfectly structured to play like one or two hours a night, and then be super happy with it again." So. I am super happy with it again. <laughs> yeah, it's like they got the secret sauce for this one, whereas Awakening um, was like fun enough, but needed to be pushed a little bit farther. Fates went too far in the sort of anime, horny, titty stuff direction, and just didn't figure out the gameplay stuff very well. Whereas this one, like, it's not perfectly balanced, but everything feeds into each other. You see the results of all of your meticulous organization during the teaching and exploration phases at the end of every month. And it just feels so satisfying to go right back into that sort of structure again, where it's like three weeks of teaching everybody how to be the best murderer possible, and then they execute murder very effectively. 
So proud. I am. All right. Uh, I think that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Uh, Alicia Akampora produced this episode of Three Moves Ahead, which is hosting the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, that also has further information about our super secret Discord server where we occasionally talk about strategy games. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then... For Fraser, for Rowan, and for Gita, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.